Thank you, choir. It's good to see you uh, today. And looking forward to uh, sharing with you out of God's Word in a few moments. And especially looking forward to next Sunday at Easter. And just want to uh, say in light of what uh, Chase shared, I think uh, also be a great place next uh, Sunday. If you want to take family portraits out there by the cross, that would be a good uh, time to do that. I want to express thanks on behalf of Jerry Joe and myself and my son Caleb and uh, my daughter-in-law Casey for your uh, prayers uh, and uh, helping get uh, Rory Jewel into the world. And we're rejoicing in that new life in our family. But again, uh, thank you all for praying for the time that got bumped up with the C-section and just a little bit of stress that was going on there. So we appreciate uh, how many of you prayed and how many reached out to let us know uh, that you were uh, pray, and that means uh, the world to us. I uh, just encourage you in your classes this week to follow up with folks who are not there today. I know we've got tons of people uh, traveling for spring break, uh, but just make sure no one has fallen through the cracks or sick or hurt or anything like that, because uh, we count on you to help us keep up with what's going on in the life of our church. Father, we thank you now for this uh, day, this week, for all that it means, and we pray that, Lord, you would help us today, God, to be able to grasp a bit more of what it means that uh, God became man in Christ Jesus, and, Lord, how, Lord, powerful and beautiful and wise you were and how you went about our salvation. We ask you to encourage us through the Scriptures. And Lord, we pray that we would seek to be your faithful witnesses, to share the good news with people around us who, Lord, need to know of your grace and the gift of eternal life by simply trusting in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we praise you today, Father, Son, and Spirit, for being our great God, Yahweh, Jehovah. We give you all the praise and the honor and the glory, and we thank you that, Lord, you are here among us and in us as believers through your Spirit, and we just pray you would help us to sense you and to commune well with you today and respond rightly to your Word, and we'll thank you for helping us to that end. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, every year at Easter, <clears throat> Jesus enters into the mainstream discussion of, of most Americans. Secular magazines run articles about Jesus. Usually there is some type of a special on some network this week. Probably you'll find it about Jesus. And of course, the rhythm of our society is affected by the week we're about to enter into. Holy Week, it is called. And like Christmas, even those with no religious affiliation feel the impact of the person of Jesus uh, during this week. Jesus really existed in the time frame of history as the Bible presents him. He walked on this planet. Sometimes today in pop culture, you will hear things like, well, we don't really know if Jesus really ever existed. But no informed person, not even non-Christian scholars, doubt that he truly lived 2,000 years ago in Israel. We have the reliable sources of the Gospels. They are ancient documents themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who present Jesus through the lenses of those writers. And even secular scholars rank Luke, the second Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third Gospel, as the, uh, as the uh, historian of first rank. And so Luke is looked at, even by secular scholars, as being a great historian. We know him as more than a historian. We know he is inspired 
by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but even outside sources from the ancient world attest to the presence and the impact of Jesus. Just a few examples you would find would be Tacitus, and I think I have uh, a statue of Tacitus. There you go. Uh, first century Roman historian writing during the time of just after Jesus' life. And remember Nero, the Roman emperor, had burned down the city of Rome wanting to have a rebuilding project and ended up blaming it on the Christians. How do we know that? Well, we know that from his history. And so Tacitus wrote, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Well, that's what the Bible says, isn't it? That he suffered there in Israel. And then we have Pliny the Younger, the Roman governor of Bithynia, around 112 AD, not long after the completion of the book of Revelation. He was writing a letter to the Roman emperor Tacitus, asking him how to conduct legal proceedings against the Christians. The Christian population was growing. And so they were trying to deal with them from a legal standpoint with their growing numbers and the lawsuits and the things that went on. And he wrote this in his letter to the emperor. What he had learned about these Christians, he said in part was, quote, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds. So we have two Romans there. Then we have the historian Josephus, a Jewish historian, first century. He has more than one reference to Jesus, but when writing about the condemnation of a man named James, he says, the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ. Well, we know Jesus' half-brother was James, and that he wrote right, one of the books in our New Testament. <clears throat> and then we have someone from the Greek world, the Greek uh, satirist, a uh, comedian you would think of him today, or a writer of satire. His name was Lucian. And in the second century, he wrote this. <clears throat> he said, the Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. It was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. And so again, outside of the Bible, there are the sources that Jesus not only lived, but also how he died and how the Christians worshiped him as a god and sang to him and turned away from the idols of the Roman Empire. But as we come to this week, that marks when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday of that week with the crowds hailing him, only to be impaled upon a cross by the end of that week, there is more to consider than that he just existed or that he literally died. What we must learn to incorporate into our minds and into our faith, into our hearts and into our souls, is that Jesus was truly a man, truly a man. And I want to focus upon that with you today as we consider a bit more of the true lines of what we believe as Christians. We're learning about our faith from the ground up. And so today in a message that I'm going to be using a lot of Scripture in, so I hope that you'll follow along in your Bible, we're going to consider basically the doctrine of the humanity of Jesus. 
And it's extremely important that we understand the doctrine of the humanity of Jesus. And so as we come to this Passion Week, which it is also called, I want to talk to you in a message I've entitled, Fully Man, A Vital Truth. Now, Chase read John 19, 1 through 6. And it will be in the background of what I'm talking about today. But I want you to turn to John chapter 12. And we're going to read verses 1 through 14, which John places right before Jesus uh, coming, riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So, John 12, 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. And Bethany's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And this was where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. This was a community-type dinner. Don't think it was in their house. It was in the house, the other texts tell us, of Simon. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, that is to help, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day... The great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. In our Baptist faith and message, Again, if you're new to our church, you're visiting around, you'll find these little booklets in the uh, foyers. And this is a summary of our statement of faith, the document that was written in the year 2000, revised in that year, summarizes what we hold to as uh, Southern Baptists in our church in particular. And in our Baptist faith and message, under the doctrine of God, there is a statement that deals with God the Son. I think it's Article 2, and it will be Section B. And part of that statement reads this way. It says, Christ is the eternal Son of God. In his incarnation as Jesus Christ, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Listen, Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taken upon himself human nature with all its demands and necessities, and identifying himself completely with mankind yet without sin. It goes on to say he was raised from the dead with a glorified body and appeared to his disciples as the person who was with them before his crucifixion. So let us consider this today along two lines as we talk about the humanity of Jesus. 
First of all, I want you to think about the fact with me that he truly was fully human. And so I believe that. Well, good, you should. But beyond that, I want you to understand why it is important that you believe that he is fully human. Why is he presented in this way? And so our statement of faith drawn from the scripture presents him as a full human being. It says he was always eternally God as the eternal son. But in time, 2,000 years ago, he took on or he assumed human nature. And so he is fully God and fully man. And as would, uh, it would be summarized from a statement in the early church, it was a statement in the early church that said this, without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. That is, something changed. The Trinity, the Son, eternal Son, took on flesh, and that has not ever ceased to be. And one early Christian creed, the Nicene Creed, says, for us, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate or took on flesh by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. And so in every way, except one, in his humanity, Jesus was just like each of us. As the disciples interacted with him, they were interacting with a human being. He looked like them. He talked like them, right? He heard all those things. He was a human being. And so physically, we can say that Jesus was like us. He was born through a normal human delivery, like babies are born every day in this world. He was born through the Virgin Mary. And again, some of the texts I'm not going to look up, but Galatians 4, 4 talks about the fact that at the proper time, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Galatians 4, 4. And so Jesus had ancestors on Mary's side. And Jesus had genes passed down from Mary's family, her genetics, we might say. He may have looked someone like his grandfather on his mother's side. And when he was born, we remember they said they wrapped him in what? Swaddling clothes, swaddling cloths. He was swaddled. Why? To keep him warm. I was reminded of, of this with my new granddaughter the other day. They had it wrapped up like a taco. And you know, that's how they do that, right? <laughs> And you're reminded of swaddling clothes, right? And I hadn't held a baby like that in years. Man, it was frightening at first. <laughs> and so when we read the text in the Gospel of John, where she comes and anoints him, it says she anointed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. In parallel text in the Gospels, it says she first poured it out over his head, and so it ran down his whole body and then to his feet, and she then wiped his feet. And Mark, in his gospel, says that she was doing this, Jesus said, to anoint his body, right, for burial ahead of time. And so the physical human nature of Jesus is emphasized here. He was a real man preparing to die a horrendous death. John elsewhere talks about their interaction with Jesus as a person, how impactful it was to think about the fact that this was God in their presence, but he was God who had taken on human flesh. And so we read out of the Gospel of John this morning, but if you turn over to the first epistle of John, same writer, chapter 1, he opens his, his epistle here with these words. He says, That which was from the beginning, 1 John 1, 1, 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. So they heard Jesus talk, which we have seen with our eyes. He's remembering his interaction with this glorious man, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen, what we have heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He says, we write this to make our joy complete. What a wonderful thing to think about John reminiscing, the one that Jesus loved, the text says, reminiscing about the humanity of Jesus, of touching him and hearing him. Jesus was a full human being. He ate with his disciples, did he not? And he says that uh, at the Last Supper, I'll not sup with you again, right, until the, until the kingdom comes. But he, he says he has eaten with him. Jesus got hungry when he fasted. He got hungry like us. And when we see him hanging on the cross in John chapter 19, in verse 25, he, he cries out and he says, I am what? Thirsty. So here's Jesus in his physicality. He is so much like us. He felt pain when soldiers beat him. He bled as he hurt from that crown of thorns we were singing about pushed down on his head. He felt excruciating pain as his hands and feet were pierced. Now, what's worse than that is he's bearing the sins of the world and receiving the wrath of God, the wrath of the Father. But from a human vantage point, he's going through great suffering. He hung suffocating on the cross for hours because you see on that cross when your hands are like this and your body's sagging down, your lungs are filling up with fluid. And so he keeps pushing himself up. They had a little bar down there. You could push yourself up to, to alleviate the pain a bit. But that's why they would break their legs at the end, right? They came and broke the other two prisoners' legs because they needed to get them dead in relationship to the Jewish, Right? Passover, those kinds of things. But they came to Jesus and they didn't break his legs because he was already dead. But you see, the idea is that you're really drowning your fluid when you're hanging on a cross. That's really what ultimately kills you from a human vantage point. It's a horrible way to execute. And when they pierced him after he was dead, remember they stuck the spear in him. The text says that water and blood ran from his side. He was fully, physically a human being. And in his physical life, he feels everything and has felt everything you and I feel in our physical lives. Jesus was also like us psychologically. He thought and reasoned with his mind. He had obviously a powerful intellect. But he also felt deeply. He had powerful emotions, but they were under control. And thus, a sampling from the Bible tells us that he had to develop normally in his body like your children and my children have had to do. And so in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, Jesus grew with wisdom and stature before man and God. So he grew with wisdom. His mind was developing, 
And also he was growing in his stature physically. He had to grow up and go through the growing up process. Like all of us in this room, he had to go through puberty. He had to go through the teen years, which are not always the most fun. They're fun in a lot of ways, but they're not fun in some ways as you're trying to sort things out in life and all the push and pull and all the things that go on within you as a teen. It's been a long time ago, but I remember that. He also experienced love as an emotion. Remember when the man came to him and asked about having eternal life, and he was very rich. And ultimately Jesus said, go sell everything you have and come follow me. And it says he went away because he was, he was very rich. And it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. There was a moment in time in Jesus' life as a little boy where he experienced the emotion of love for the very first time, probably for his parents, right? That's when we usually experience love in the depth of our hearts with our parents for the first time. Jesus felt pity for people. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34, you remember that he had a crowd of people following him, and it was getting uh, on in the day. And the text says down in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse uh, 29 following, that uh, there's this large crowd. You have the two blind men, and they're calling out for Jesus to uh, help them. And uh, this is, uh, there's, uh, the compassion is also in the text where people were hungry in the text, but this is the two blind men. And Jesus stops and says, what do you want me to do for you? And Lord, they answer, we want our sight. It says, Jesus had compassion on them. And we find that word compassion in this text, in the text where people were hungry. And it's a word that's, that's tied to his internal organs being torn up inside. I think Andrew alluded to this in his sermon last week about Jesus being moved internally. So he had compassion. And Jesus also got angry and he grieved over people. As we just kind of uh, transition and move out of this part about him being so much like us physically and psychologically. And you remember in Mark chapter 3, in uh, verse 5, Mark 3 verse 5, uh, the text um, talks about when he's healing on the Sabbath, and there are people there being critical of, of that, and the Jewish leadership in verse 5, it says, He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he healed the man. So here we see Jesus having anger toward these people, and he was also deeply distressed. And so Jesus was like us psychologically, in his mind and in his emotions. He knew a lot of things ahead of time in his mind. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Peter was going to deny him, right? But on the other hand, he seems to be limited in some things that he knew because you recall when he, in Mark uh, chapter 9, he was talking to a man who had a, a little boy who had epilepsy, and Jesus encountered him, and he said, how long has he been this way? And I don't think it was just a question that he already knew the answer to. I think he was really asking for information. The man said he's been this way since he was little. And so Jesus was fully human. That's just driving it home with lots of text today. It's in the text for a reason. You know, this fact is offensive to some because they would say God is too high and too pure ever to assume flesh. That's why Muslims reject Jesus to a great degree as an incarnation of God. Allah is too high to, 
take on human flesh. That's why the Gnostics had a hard time, some of them, with the idea that uh, God would take on flesh because flesh was evil. Flesh was not good. Flesh was not going to last. But Jesus presented as fully a human being, and he, he remains a glorified human being. Flesh Right? Goes into eternity. Your flesh and mine in the resurrection, glorified, will go into eternity. Matter is not distasteful to God. He created all the physical things. And so Jesus had this physical body. And some say that um, God would never reveal himself in one human being. But Jesus came in history as a man who singularly says, I'm God in human form and did everything to back that up. And so I can imagine for the disciples to look back on being in his um, physical presence. I can, I can think about how quite riveting that was for them for the rest of their lives. Thus, 1 John chapter 1 that we read. When we visited Israel a few years ago, Got to see a lot of exciting things, and I hope uh, more trips go from our church as things get ramped back up with the world travel. But when we went to Israel, we went to Jerusalem, and we got to visit the Temple Mount, the Temple Ruins, the Western Wall, all of that. And we got to visit the Southern Steps. There they are, and the hill you see beyond them, that's the Mount of Olives. There's a long, can't say how long this really is, how how many yards this is, but it's a long way of all these called the southern steps. And these were covered until excavations began around the 1970s. And pretty certain, almost certain, underneath some of the newer concrete, you see the more rocky concrete. That's the originals that were there. It's pretty certain, because this is where rabbis would sit and teach and interact, that Jesus of Nazareth sat on these steps and taught and interacted. The gates were above there that we'd have gone into to get into the city, one of the sets of gates. And it just overwhelmed me to think that I'm standing here where the eternal Son of God, taking on flesh, stood and taught. And you know, Neil Armstrong, he was the first person to ever walk on the moon. And he visited this site some years after he had walked on the moon and when he was told that this is where Jesus, probably without a doubt, sat and taught, he said that Neil Armstrong fell to his knees and he said, this is much more exciting than stepping on the moon. And it is. He fully was a man. God took on flesh and he was there. But in his humanity, there was one central difference between Jesus and us. Only one difference in his humanity. And that is, in his humanity, he was completely sinless. And so our statement of faith summarizes that by saying, Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking upon himself human nature with all of its demands and necessities, and identifying himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. Now, there are tons of texts, and a few of them are going to be on the screen, and I don't have time to read them all. But on several occasions, the point is made for us in the New Testament that Jesus never sinned. In John 8, 46, Jesus says, which of you convicts me of sin? In John 15, 10, Jesus talks about he always does the will of his Father. 
2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, I do want you to read this one with me if you would like to turn because it's such an important text. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where Paul says, God made him who had no sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the book of Acts, in chapter 2, verse 27, and many other places in the book of Acts, he is called the Holy One of Israel. The Jews would never have called him the Holy One of Israel had he been a man who had sin. He was the Holy One of Israel. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, reminds us further about his sinlessness, where the Bible says, Hebrews 4, verse 15, told you I'd use a lot of scripture, and I want you to look with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. In Hebrews 7, 26, I'll leave you to read that one as well. So Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. But understand this, because he never sinned, He experienced temptation at a level and a depth and a height and a width that you and I never will because he never gave in to sin. And so the pressure upon him would have been great. We know how Satan came and tempted him for 40 days. But in his humanity, he never gave in to it. Not only did he not sin, he perfectly did the will of God. Now, I want you to know that this vital truth, this vital truth is now not believed by about half of the American population. So, in other words, about half of the American population thinks that Jesus probably sinned. Among millennials, it's even higher. Among the millennial generation, 56% of them think that Jesus sinned while he was on the earth. Now, I dare say most of them have not spent much time investigating Jesus or the Bible. They're just making assumptions. But the clear affirmation of Scripture is that he, this only true God, this only full, fully sinless man, that he never sinned. And we'll see in a moment why this is uh, so important. So on this Palm Sunday, as we come to the week when Jesus would die this horrible death, a week that again began in celebration of people calling him King and Savior, We need to recall that a real, living, breathing, perfect human being rode into that week to defeat darkness that had engulfed the world and the human race, and he died as a human being. Hang on to that for just a moment, because now quickly, secondly, I want to talk to you about the reasons this truth is vital, that Jesus was fully a man and that he was sinless. So I have three or four things here to share with you, and we'll wrap this up. Why is it important that Jesus was fully a human and that he never sinned? Well, first, it's important because he was a man and never sinned. He can fully be our representative. You see, Jesus can represent us as the the perfect human. Mankind, as we've learned, is fallen and flawed. We all are, separated from fellowship with God. Jesus has come as the second Adam, the last Adam, the true human, to reconcile us to God by being our representative. And so in his sinless life, he honored the divine law by his personal obedience, our our statement says. 
And so Jesus not only dies for sinners, which we'll come to in a moment, but this point is trying to say this, Jesus also lives for sinners as well. That is, he fulfilled all of righteousness as a pure human. Remember, that's why he allowed himself to be baptized. He didn't need anything to be done, but he did that to fulfill what? All righteousness. And so he can be our representative. And thus his righteousness becomes ours when we trust in him. He made him who had no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, to be sin for us, right? My sin became his sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. His righteousness becomes my righteousness. His record becomes my record. And if he was not truly sinless, that could never be true. But it is true. Romans 5.19 reminds us further about that idea. And again, I'll leave you to look up that verse. That's your homework. It's important that he was a human and sinless further, secondly, because he can be our substitute. Not only did he actively obey and live for us, he also passively laid down his life for us. In 1 Peter 2.24 says, He carried our sins in his body on the tree. He is the only one qualified because he was sinless. He acted on our behalf as a priest, and he offered himself as the sacrifice. And so he becomes the mediator between God and humanity. A mediator is one who brings two parties that are separated together. And Paul says this of him in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, about his mediatorial work. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, For there is one God... And one mediator between God and mankind, listen, the man, Christ Jesus. He can be our substitute. Thirdly, it's important that he is looked at as being fully human because he is and never sinned because he can be our model, our example. Paul mentioned that he'd given up everything about his previous Jewish identity so that he could know Christ, he says. He said, I want to know him. I've given up all this other stuff I had as a Jew, all of my pedigree, all of my training, because I, I want to know him. And he has become my model. And Paul went on to say, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. Jesus is the true human. And he is the one in whom we are to find our identity. And he is the one we are to seek to become like in every way. And at this point, before I come to the last thing, I want to share the most important thing I'm going to share with you today about Jesus being a man and being sinless, the perfect human, and him being our example, the one from whom we get our identity in life. This truth is so important, it goes against everything in our culture today that is so broken. In our culture, people are confused about so many things. It's because they're seeking to find their identity in the wrong place. Their vision of life is warped. People look within, seeking to find themselves. And so they try to find their identity in their goals. They try to find their identity in their professions, in their pursuits of money, in relationships, in their sexuality. And since that is such a central issue in contemporary culture, it helps us see where the problem lies and where the solution is found. You see, our identity in life and fulfillment in this life will never be found looking within and seeking to construct life in that way. That is idolatry. 
And that is the central idolatry of American culture, that we're looking within, trying to find our identity and to build our lives out of what we feel and what we think, and that we become the source of authority. But you see, the Bible says life is found looking outwardly at him, at Jesus. He is the model for both life and who we are and what we do in life. Christopher Yuan, who was with us a few years ago, and I hope to bring him back, I encourage you to read his books out of uh, A Far Country and Holy Sexuality. Christopher was deep into the homosexual lifestyle, went to prison in Atlanta, a federal prison for selling drugs. Found out in prison he had AIDS. And out of that, God worked in the prison. If you recall his testimony, he picked up a Bible and began to read it, and God changed his life. He went on to be a professor at Moody Bible Institute. He's moved to California now. But I want you to hear what he said about identity and how this ties into what I'm talking about today. He said, Paul said in Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Christ should be everything, my all in all. My sexual orientation didn't have to be the core of who I was. My primary identity didn't have to be defined by my feelings or sexual attractions. My identity was not a quote-unquote gay or homosexual or even heterosexual for that matter. But my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. I'd always thought that the opposite of homosexuality was heterosexuality. But actually, the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. God never said, be heterosexual, for I'm heterosexual. He said, be holy, for I'm holy. And Christopher Yuan came to understand that his identity was in Jesus. And that's how he found freedom in his life. He found freedom by looking to Christ, the perfect person. And he models his life after him. And the final thing before we close and Kevin comes to lead us is it's important that Jesus is fully human and that he never sinned because he can be our comfort and our strength. I want you to stand with me as we wrap this up. And I'm going to read one other passage out of the New Living Translation out of Hebrews 4 verses 15 and 16. And the last two things I'm sharing with you today I think are the most important. That our identity is not found within, but it is found in looking to Christ, the Holy One of God, and building our life after Him. And the last thing I want you to hear is that He can also be our comfort and our strength because He's fully human. And the New Living Translation puts it this way in Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. This high priest of ours, that is Jesus, understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. This world is often a hard place. We are tempted, we struggle, we feel pain, loneliness. Jesus has walked where we have walked. And he sympathizes with us, understands us, knows how to comfort us, how to help us, how to heal us. 
So no matter what you're going through, no matter if you feel you have failed and given into temptation, Jesus wants you to come to him for sympathy and for forgiveness. He understands. One of our old hymns spoke of this. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. He was and is the only fully sinless human who is also God. And it's important for us always to embrace his full humanity and his full sinlessness and how that applies to our lives to save us and to help us live.